0: The scripture for today is Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines, but you shall be called priests of the Lord, you shall be named ministers of our God, you shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their glories or in their riches you shall glory. Because their shame was double and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot, therefore they shall possess a double portion, everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I the Lord have loved justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are the people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. The word of the Lord.
1: popular, sort of the most societally acceptable outlook or disposition, but sometimes optimism seems a little bit cheap to me, shallow, like it has no weight. This could be just an indication of some sort of minor neuroses of mine. My mom always said I was a pessimist, something she seemed to intuit as soon as I was able to talk. I like to think I was just sort of innately grounded. My mom grew up a Christian scientist like Mary Baker Eddy, like the power of positive thinking. They believed that the material world was an illusion. Pain and sickness and anything bad, really, was an illusion. If you didn't give it reality in your mind, it wasn't real. My mom didn't continue being a Christian scientist, but it was still sort of lingering about. And I think maybe I just intuited that someone needed to be keeping the bad things in mind. If the dog was missing, it didn't really matter whether I thought positive thoughts. It could be dead. Its cute little furry legs crushed blood dripping out of its immobilized mouth. I could picture the worst vividly. I wanted to prepare myself for the eventuality. Admittedly, this hasn't always served me well. Ask my husband. I have a great imagination for the gruesome details of potential disaster. But still, maybe people don't want to be preoccupied with it, but bad things, sad things, painful, heartbreaking things are really, really, really real. The songbirds are dying. The oceans are rising. Innocent people, or even if they aren't completely innocent, are being tortured. There are a lot of people who are very sad and have every reason to be. You are going to die. And so are your children. This isn't pessimism. This is life. Life is suffering, said the Buddha. And if you don't see that, you won't really be able to see anything else very honestly. The first thing that we do when we are born is cry. That's how they know we're alive. And a few years down the road, the fear of death seeps in, and we try to distract ourselves. And in that process, we become sort of preoccupied with ourselves. And instead of being open and aware of how intricately connected we are with everything around us and beyond us, we become self-absorbed. And these selves with which we are so absorbed will be gone forever relatively soon. I know that's kind of a spare outline, and it sort of misses a lot of the high points. (laughs) But still, I'm not sure that optimism is the answer. Anyway, the writer of the passage in Isaiah says that the Spirit of God came upon him and anointed him to speak of these wonderful things— Good news, comfort, gladness, everlasting joy, garlands, glory, things growing and things springing up. He was bringing this incredible hope to the people. I don't really know who he was or what his brain chemistry was like. I know he wasn't a Christian scientist. I'm going to guess that he wasn't really like a motivational speaker type, but I could be wrong. But it was like something from outside of him possessed him and enabled him to proclaim something really dazzling. But actually also something kind of upending, potentially upsetting. Good news to the oppressed. Liberty to the captives. Release to the prisoners who are not all innocent. It's this jubilee language, which was actually a thing that was supposed to happen every 50 years, where the slaves would be set free, and the fields would all lie fallow. I mean, you could imagine if that, if that really happened, what a mess it would make of the order of the world. What even happens when the slaves quit serving their masters, the slaves of capital? the slaves of progress, the slaves of consumerism. Bob Dylan said, sometimes I think this whole world is one big prison yard. Some of us are prisoners, and some of us are guards. But what happener happens when the prisoners get free? Something beautiful, I'm sure, but maybe a little wild. Which is maybe why the Jewish law prescribes a year of Jubilee, but most scholars think these days that it never actually happened. When the time came up, they always probably figured this seems a little bit reckless. Later, the Christians thought they'd try it. But the idea sort of lost its vigor. Some pope in the 12th century instituted the first official Christian year of Jubilee. And this was the deal. You made a pilgrimage to Rome, and by doing that, you received an indulgence to set you free from sin. Rome wasn't exactly in its heyday, but the pilgrimage drummed up lots of business. Hundreds of thousand pilgrims are good for the economy. That sort of waters down the whole idea of everything in turn upside down. But so, Thrysia... People usually call him Third Isaiah, but that seems so diminishing to me. So, Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites who have been living in exile in Babylon because their country had been destroyed and invaded. And so they were brought to the dreaded Babylon, the devastating, devouring, whoring, evil empire. And as it turns out, they kind of enjoyed it. There were canals and some decent art. Some of them made some good money. It was cosmopolitan, kind of sophisticated-seeming. There were a lot of rich and powerful people milling about, nice bars, swimming pools, movie stars. The empire is alluring. Of course they were supposed to want to come back to Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God but it seemed a little bit like going back to nowheresville. It's not easy to leave the empire. The empire might not love justice. It might not be all that great for the poor. It might not bind up the brokenhearted, but it can be a lot of fun, entertaining. It's comfortable for the comfortable. But the prophet is trying to talk them out of empire. He's saying this new thing is going to be beautiful, everlasting joy, love like deep and wide, like big oaks coming up in the desert with deep roots. It's a very communal hope that he's describing. It includes all the people who are not usually included in the delicious delights of the empire. It's not just spoken to those who succeed in the system. In fact, it's mostly spoken to those who don't succeed in the system. The hope here is not meant to soothe the self. It's sort of wildly, sort of emphatically connective. Everything shut away and shut out is going to be present in the new creation that God is in the process of creating doesn't seem like cheap optimism. That's like the deep and the dark, the hidden coming up into the light, like walking up out of the dungeon in the darkness. It's beautiful, but maybe a little bit scary. Positive thinking is like a bazillion-dollar industry. People buy and buy and buy into it. It helps you lose weight, get jobs, win friends and influence people. People say it will help you beat cancer, make you mentally and physically healthy. And besides, it's just kind of fashionable. I've always sort of liked the nihilists. They aren't really very popular on talk shows or TV. But I'm not sure that motivational speakers will have much of an audience once the bound are unbound, when the system that runs the world is upended, when the poor and the fat and the old and the guilty and the unacceptable, when the captives, when the criminals are released, Imagine all those people free, joyful, and blessed. I'm pretty sure that this whole incredibly hopeful passage isn't meant to urge the people leaving empire to have an upbeat attitude. An upbeat attitude is more of an empire thing. I don't think that you have to look at dystopian literature to see this played out, but it's kind of interesting, too. Whatever power is in power in these sorts of scenarios is always sort of insistent on positivity. In Orwell's Oceania, dissent is vaporized, sort of a more upbeat word for exterminated. thoughts are not allowed, you see what the empire demands, you see negativity might lead to insurrection. You must believe that the dark is light, or else the system would crack open. The propaganda that the empire churns out is meant to make all resistant modes of thought impossible. In a brave new world, everyone takes the soma the drug that induces this hallucinogenic happiness, this cheerful optimism that eliminates the need for anything outside what capitalism provides. All citizens are conditioned from birth to value consumption, and everything runs smoothly as long as people are cheerfully consuming. Olivia, my daughter, just read one of these kinds of books. Um, And in this book, where people get to be a certain age, the guardians of social happiness perform this operation that releases everybody forever from this thing called delirium nervosa, a disease that they've convinced everyone is responsible for all suffering. But as it turns out, what the operation does is make them incapable of love which does, in fact, create a certain amount of suffering. I mean, really, there's no question about it. Love involves suffering. God calls us to love. The hope in these texts is centered on this. Something far beyond romance, which is painful enough, but love for the world It seems a little bit crazy, like too much to bear. Imagine the pain involved in that. The world's wounds are ghastly. There is so much sadness and brokenness and tragedy. How can you love all that? I came across this website for Optimist International. There's actually thousands of optimist clubs that meet all over our empire. There's an optimist creed that goes like this Promise yourself to be strong, to be so strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. To talk health, happiness, and prosperity to every person you meet, to look at the sunny side of everything and make your optimism come true, to think only of the best and to expect only the best, to give so much time to the improvement of yourself that you have no time to criticize others, to be too large for worry, too noble for anger, too strong for fear, and too happy to permit the presence of trouble. does it mean to become the children of God? To be called out of empire? The light coming to the darkness seems to be a major theme. And the darkness actually has some weight. We obviously don't have to choose this book as our scripture, but you know what? It's not exactly a happy book about anger-free, fear-free, worry-free people. The Bible is full of heartbreaking stories. Lots and lots and lots of them. Adam and Eve, one of their sons kills the other. Heartbreaking. The whole history of the patriarchs, Abraham nearly kills his son and leaves the other one in the desert. Joseph is left in a pit in the wilderness by his brothers. David mourns Absalom. The whole history of Israel is pretty heartbreaking. The people are exiled from their home, made refugees. And then you wouldn't necessarily expect it. But the return to home turns out to be heartbreaking too. And the story of Jesus... There's all these promises of restoration and redemption and new creation. But it's never like everything gets better. There's no Oceania, no utopia. No one seems to be taking the Soma. Is it because the promises aren't true? there's pain involved in everlasting joy. There's suffering inside love. The prophet's good news is for the broken hearted. The prophet is a witness to who God is and what God does and what God's working on and it seems like God might be working on breaking our hearts. Maybe because they're too hard and our love is too narrow because the only way we can figure out to be happy or to feel good about ourselves is to separate ourselves somehow from the suffering and the sick and the unacceptable and the broken. Draw a line between us and the whole complicated sadness of the world so it can't quite touch us. But the hope here seems to be in the undrawing of lines, even the lines that seem most important for a functional society. I mean, really, release the prisoners? Set the criminals, the guilty ones, free? One of the things that the prophet claims is good news to the returning exiles is that there will be foreigners in their midst. Part of the restoration of the devastations of many generations will be strangers and foreigners involved in the sort of intimate life of the people. They'll be feeding their flocks, dressing their vines, probably eating breakfast in their houses. The Hebrew term means literally sons of foreignness, foreignness pressed up against them, invading their space. The Israelites had spent a lot of their history trying to keep separate. They seemed to think, judging from the literature, that this was a big part of what it meant to be the people of God. And there's something in Isaiah's pronouncement of hope that must have seemed disturbing. The everlasting joy doesn't seem to be quite about reveling in being God's chosen people, but opening it up to everyone. When Jesus took up these words in Galilee to pronounce the intent of his mission, nobody really there heard it as good news. They heard it as threatening. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. I think maybe this indicates that the good news of God isn't necessarily something easy to hear. Some sort of simplistic optimism about a peace and love that, of course, everyone would agree to. It overturns the order of the world. Because the order of the world leaves a lot of people in ruin. We might, we probably certainly are theoretically open to loving what is foreign. But the truth is, we aren't that good at it most of the time. I mean, if it fits our criteria of beautiful and good, or if it's exotic in some way that's attractive, sure. But God's good news His God's creation comes up out of the ruins and the grave. It includes everything and everybody. If we were, if it was up to us to create the new creation, we probably wouldn't do it quite like God. But maybe our imaginations are just a little bit too stunted, a little square, a little too formed by the lines that the empire draws. The grace of God casts out nothing. Nothing at all. That might not even seem like very good creation, very good art to us. It includes a lot of what we think is ugly in ourselves and outside of ourselves, or things that we think should remain locked up. The world isn't oriented towards good news for the oppressed it's just not god is god's doing a work that is beyond our imaginations god is recreating our imaginations calling us out of empire and god's not doing it from some high place where god remains safe and pain free but through God's own broken body that suffered for the world in love.